Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, we are joined here today by Dr. Amin Imlani. Amin, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, Dave, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's um, I am the president of Odolithic LLC, which is a boutique consultancy, um, and I've been in this role now for a little bit over a year after the pandemic after the pandemic uh, kind of kicked in. And uh, I'm really enjoying the opportunity to engage with uh, various stakeholders and, and getting them ready for, for what's coming uh, in the future here. Fantastic. So why don't we go kind of back to your uh, origin story, um, share with the audience how you came into the field of audiology. Um, we were just chatting, you know, before we started recording, and I think you had a very interesting pivot during your dissertation. Um which I think will kind of segue into what today's topic is going to be about. So I will let you just kind of share how you came into this whole field. And then if you could maybe like go through the timeline up until you, you had this pivot, if you will. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a raised in Dallas. Um, and, um, when I was a, a, a younger person, I had a friend who was deaf. Uh, and, um, I always wanted to be an engineer, but wasn't quite smart enough to go down that track. And so, uh, when I was an undergrad, I initially started in economics and, uh, quit about halfway through. Uh, and when I say quit, I should actually rephrase that. I got kicked out of the Institute after some soul searching, uh, in a, in a great conversation with my paternal grandfather, um, late grandfather, uh, ended up going to the University of the Pacific, and when I was there, ended up in the Communication Sciences and Disorders program. Uh, from there, I ended up at Purdue, uh, which was a really, really enlightening uh, opportunity for me to really understand audiology. And I got involved in research with uh, Dr. Goldstein, uh, who's the father of the AUD. And we were really looking at um, some of the things that were coming out. And at that point in time, um, the Hearing Industries Association had just hired Sergey Kochkin. And so we were looking at his paper called The Marlboro Man and how uh, there were opportunities to increase the adoption rate uh, in, in, in the profession. And so David and I did a couple of things with some pricing and some other things, you know, that were kind of master's related. I ended up writing my thesis on the International Hearing Aid Fitting Forum, for those of you who have been around that long. Um, and then when I, I uh, finished my, my clinical fellowship year, ended up going to Michigan State with the premise that signal processing and digital hearing aids were going to be the future. And it wasn't until I got into my dissertation uh, and almost finished it that the conversation was not about signal processing, but it was more about the value proposition that the product provided the individual. In other words, it wasn't how the, the hearing aid was going to provide a cleaner signal. It was what that patient was going to do with that signal and how it was going to improve their quality of life. But at that point, it was too late for me because I didn't want to go back. We, I had just gotten married, had a child. And so when I went out for my first job, 
one of the things that I wanted to do was kind of circumvent this issue of, is it really signal processing or is it something else? And so we started looking at some of these things as it related to price elasticity and value propositions and perceived value. And what we ultimately came up with, and I still strongly believe this, the product is not the be all and end all of this industry. It's the services that are provided that change the lives of the individual. And that's the message that's missing still 20 years after I began this research. Yeah, I think it's a it's obviously very relevant to where we stand today because like all of this focus is on this new slew of products that are, you know, due to hit the market, the over-the-counter uh hearing aids and and everything that is coming from the consumer electronics side. And, you know, I think that one of the themes throughout this whole com- this whole podcast, um, especially over the last year, has been this idea of like uh it's such a multi-pronged approach as to why the penetration rates of hearing aid adoption are so low and kind of stagnant. Um, And I think that where I've come to the conclusion is that there's really three big culprits. It's uh, price does play a, play a role, but it's a combination of price stigma and access. And I think that ultimately you can kind of roll the three into the value proposition of, you know, the patient. Right. And, and, and I think that what you're left with is we currently have a value proposition that the byproduct is a seven to 10 year waiting period uh, for them to take action. And I think that, you know, it's interesting where we sit now, because I think OTC will certainly have an impact on um, potentially all three. Uh, but I think that there's a lot more kind of going on here. And I do agree with you that I think that the provider actually is, is, is a big part of the equation as well with, in terms of how they can ultimately increase the value proposition, they can make it more compelling for the patient. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so to your point, and I absolutely agree, you know, there are determinants of health, right? So you've got these social factors, you've got these psychological factors, you've got these environmental factors that preclude individuals from seeing you, right? Whether it's uh, health insurance or whether it's transportation or whether it's culture or whatever it might be. But then, you know, we have all these people that come into people's practices. So if we, let's let's assume, and I'm going to go back to the market track eight data, about a 25% adoption rate, just because the math is easier, right? So there's a 25% adoption rate. So if you see 100 people, only 25 people will fit with these devices. So it's not a flow issue. And these social determinants, they do play a role. But the biggest role, as you pointed out, is actually the provider. And, you know, we, we did a study a couple of years ago where we paired up with a very large health organization And we basically tested the predisposition and the post expectations of patients. And what we found was, is their expectations, their predisposed expectations were not being met because the provider was doing things to increase the barriers to amplification and patient compliance or or, or provider recommendations. And so to your point, the value proposition that the patients are coming in with is not being met. And so the question becomes, how do we change that? It's not the product, it's the service delivery and the commentaries that we're having with these individuals that's hurting us. 
And when these over-the-counter products come out, you're now allowing for a new avenue of acquisition that didn't exist before. And so as a, as a community, as a tribe, we now have to do a better job and one, number, understand what the patient really needs, meet them where they are, and then look at our own behavior. And when we do that, we'll be successful. If we miss one of those pieces, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. So I think that, you know, talking about the value proposition, um, again, I think it's just super relevant. And I think a good thought exercise, I had mentioned this to you. Um, one of the times I, I had a conversation with Nancy Ty Murray on the podcast who, you know, she's with Amptify now and um, her life's work is all uh, around um, oral rehabilitation. Um, I think that she made a good point. She said, you know, if, if you are a dispensing professional and you can't justifiably, uh, you can't justify the premium that you charge when somebody asks you, why should I come in and see you as opposed to Costco, I think that we're in a really precarious position as an industry right now. And I think that that kind of gets at the root of what you're mentioning, which is, you know, uh, there, there has to be a premium more or less that, that the provider is, is placing on their particular service delivery model in a, in an era that's fast approaching where you really will kind of have a commoditization of just strictly the dispensing of devices. Now you have a lot of the self-fit programming that's going to be capable through apps. Um, you know, I just, I think that the days in which if you're just, uh, programming hearing aids, um, and, and maybe not even abiding by some of the best practices in that regard, uh, it's just going to be harder and harder for you to exist with this current business model that does have a premium associated with it um, as that particular uh, portion of, of the audiologist and the hearing professional's role does sort of become commoditized, I think, over these coming years. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I'll use an analogy. So let's assume that we're going to go on vacation and we're going to stay at a, you know, a three-star hotel, whatever it might be. Well, what do you get? You get a bed, you get a shower, and you might get a free breakfast or, you know, you might get a happy hour in the evenings. And that's kind of the retail model that we have now. It's pretty simplified. But if you really want service, you might end up at a five-star resort, right? So you walk in, what happens? They know your name. Your drink is never empty. There's all kinds of amenities there, whether it's working out or a pool or a spa or whatever. You've got a number of different restaurants in which you can consume these meals and what have you. There's uh, evenings where there's uh, entertainment. And it's the same thing in audiology. We're going to have to move from this three-star uh, retail outlet that we've created into this five-star where people want to come in. And not only do they want devices, but they want counseling. They, you know, they may want a vestibular uh, testing. They may want central auditory processing testing or what other things that you might be able to provide them. So you become a one-stop shop. And not only that, but then you also become a larger player within the healthcare, within the healthcare landscape that audiology has been missing because we've been so siloed on the retail side. There's a couple of things that I want to break out there. Um, Cause I agree with you. I, I think that this is a 
Very interesting moment. And, uh, you know, I'll actually defer to you on that because you've been in the industry for, for a while now. And I think that you've seen a lot of these different eras transpire. Um, but I guess, tell me if, if I'm on, if I'm on the mark here with, it does feel very unique in the sense that, um, I think that my biggest uh, takeaway from OTC is that the biggest thing it's going to do is it's going to more or less remove quote unquote, the gatekeeper status of the professional. Um, It will sort of reduce that barrier of entry so that you're going to have a lot more avenues of access. And so I think that if you were sort of resting on your laurels as being a dispensing professional, simply because it was either you or another dispensing professional. Um, there was only a finite source of supply, essentially. And so now, as the supply side starts to open up more, um, I think that that's going to sort of lead to this situation where you really do have to justify your position in the market. And so if you are going to charge a premium, uh, this is where I think things get really interesting, which is how do you sort of differentiate yourself? Is it by becoming more medical. I've had some really interesting conversations lately on the podcast along that vein, or do you remain semi-retail, but adding a more premium level approach to your point, kind of that five-star, that five-star theme where you go above and beyond the commodity experience that you might get at one of these major brick and mortar retailers um, that is simply looking at it as uh, just another um, add-on into their overall business. It's not their core business by any means. It's something that is secondary as part of a much, much bigger business. And so there seems to be some pretty clear paths to differentiation um, that I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on. And again, make sure that I'm on the mark of, does this time feel unique in your, in your eyes, or have we kind of seen this before? So have we seen this before? The answer is no. Uh, some will argue that we've had these over-the-counter uh, PSAP devices on the market. So I remember when I was a grad student, a number of years ago, we had a device for $59 called the Whisper XL. And, you know, you could uh, purchase it uh, at the local store. And we tested a couple of these in the lab and what have you. And so certainly those were available. Now, um, this is a different era because the types of electronics that are coming in are much, much better in terms of what they can do, in terms of the value proposition that they offer the user. And then the accessibility of these things, because you can download it on your phone, you can get it in the mail, you can pick it up with somebody. So it's a, it's a whole different game. In terms of the individual, we have to be careful here not to box anybody in because it's going to depend on their market. And what I mean by that is you really have to understand your customer base. There's going to be some places where the premium retail outlet is going to flourish and there's other places where it isn't. So let's preface that conversation with that. But the key point is you're going to have to change. And what I mean by that is, and and again, going back to some of the things that we've talked about earlier in some of the the conversations that you've had with other guests, you're going to have to think about what that patient needs and what's the best thing in their interest. Patients don't come to you to buy a hearing aid. So I'll give you an example. Um, I didn't go into, into, into a home hardware store this weekend just to buy a hammer for the sake of buying a hammer. 
I bought a hammer because I needed to do something with it, whether it was fix something or take something down, right? People buy hearing aids because they can't communicate. And so when we're selling these devices or when we're dispensing these devices, it's not about just simply purchasing the device and sending the person out the door. We have to be able to ensure that this individual is taking this device and it's working in their best interest. And I think we have forgotten that. And what I mean by that is, is set up objective goals. Hey, you know what? You're struggling. You're, uh, you haven't left the house. I'm making this up, of course, in, this, in several months because of COVID. Uh, you're socially isolated, so you're depressed. Your diabetes is through the roof. Your depression is through the roof. Let's now take this device and maybe you go out a couple of times, come back and report to me how well you were able to hear. And it's now a team effort. So kind of think of it as a physical therapy effort in getting this person to become a better individual communicating. And when we do that, we've now improved what they're doing. So it's not just about audiology. It's about these other psychological and medical issues. And I think that's what you're getting at. And we have the opportunity to engage with our fellow peers outside of audiology and say, you know what? There's an audiological intervention that's taken place here. And by going in and looking at this person's diabetes, we should see that it decreases. And so now we're co-managing this person in a way that they're improving their quality of life. The audiologist has a hand in it and the physician doesn't have to have as much of a hand in it because the person is taking care of themselves. Yeah, I actually, this really brings to mind a, a piece I wrote um, for Future Ear back before I started the podcast. So this was like two or three years ago. Um, and it was very much uh, aligned along these lines, which is, um, it was kind of a combination of Clay Clayton Christensen's jobs to be done. And then also Simon Sinek's The Golden Circle. Um, and in, in The Golden Circle, this is a pretty famous TED talk that Simon Sinek gave, uh, where, you know, he basically says that there's like three rings, like, in, in on the outside ring, it's what on the inside, the first inner ring, the middle ring is how, and then the, the center is why. And he said that the vast, vast majority of companies of all different types, they go uh, outside in. So you start with what, how, why, and you just nailed it on the head, which is people aren't really coming to see you for because they're like, I need to buy a hearing aid. They're coming to see you because of the why. And so you need to kind of rethink the whole thing from an inside out approach to think about everything should start with why. And you should figure out why is this person coming to see me? Well, chances are they can't hear well in any given certain situation. So again, it's a subtle thing, but I think it helps to kind of reposition the whole picture of what the audiologist could be doing here, which is you are really your golden circle, if you will, is to be a provision of knowledgeable expertise. It is to guide them to whichever solution, hardware, software, no technology, something more along the lines of rehabilitation or APD, something like that, um, where it is, it's an individual kind of needs-based assessment where you're really understanding this. And, And again, like that's to me where the, the if, if things are framed in that line of thinking, the sustainability and the viability of this profession um, seems very, very sound. Uh, because, again, it's like, who else is going to do this? Who else is that positioned to see these kinds of people and 
troubleshoot and diagnose these kinds of problems. And I think that by just, again, reframing your mentality here and thinking about why are all of these individual people coming to see me? And I know some people already do this. So this isn't like a, you know, a sweeping statement that applies to everybody, but it's, I think like at large, it is a bit of an issue where if you're just simply viewing everybody as square peg and you have this round hole, which is a set of hearing aids, and you're just trying to fit every single person into that, that's how you end up with a 25% attachment rate, like you said, where you have the vast majority of people who come in the doors and they leave empty handed because they feel like, well, I didn't really feel like I got the thing that was actually solving the problem in which I came into this place to begin with. No, I absolutely 100% agree with what you're saying. And, and you're absolutely right with, you know, with these new legislative uh, pieces that are going to, you know, will be available here, hopefully in, in 2023 uh, or 2022 here at the end of the year. What you're going to see is a couple things. So, you know, for years, the audiologist has been protected or guarded because of the way that the legislation has been set up, meaning that people could only get hearing aids if you were a licensed individual, whether you're a hearing instrument specialist or you're an audiologist. Those barriers are gonna come down because you're gonna have direct-to-consumer products that we talked about. And so as we're having this discussion, there's a couple of things that are going through my mind. Number one, the guard is going to come down and you're right, we're gonna have opportunities to have these other discussions, whether it's a product, it's uh, it's a traditional product, it's, I'll use the word alternative product, which is not a non-traditional product, or you're just gonna counsel the individual. Where the provider is probably going is, well, how is that going to help my bottom line? And the idea here is, is you're going to have to rethink not only the services you provide, but how you provide them. And that may mean that you need to hire other individuals that are maybe not audiologists to help with that uh, uh, service delivery. And so in the states that allow for audiology assistance, you might be able to do that. There may be opportunities in states which don't where the front office is more engaged. And then you're also gonna have to rethink about, you can't spend an hour or to an hour and a half with each patient now. You're going to have to reduce it because every patient is going to count more right? Because the flow in the clinic is going to be reduced. So every patient is going to count more. And so as you're thinking about not only the services you provide, you're going to have to think about how you're providing them. And if you if you have act now, because if you wait until this thing comes out, you're going to be in trouble. But if you act now, it's going to give you the opportunity to get ahead of the curve and see what works and what doesn't. And as I said earlier, it's not a one box all fits everybody. You're going to have to figure out what works in your particular Berg and then apply that. And so we're, as you pointed out, in a really, really interesting spot as a pro, as a provider. Yeah, you have to run your business, but you also have to think about what those next steps are. And it's almost like moving from a first house into the house of your dreams. Can you afford it? How much of my stuff am I going to take with me? You know, how am I going to redecorate my house? And it's all about those major decisions and it takes time to do those. And so for those of you listening, my advice would be, it's not the end of the world. I think the world is going to be in a better place and you just have to prepare yourself for this large, arduous move that you're going to make 
that will allow you to be the clinician that audiology was set up to be when the, our forefathers put it together. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there because I do agree with you. It's like, I, from where I sit and everything I've learned, um, I, I, I just think there's so much that's happened, um, like an awakening, uh, I'll use the example of cognition, you know, so, um, I started full-time here at Oak tree in like 2016, 2017. And I want to say that very first Lancet paper came out right around that time, like 2017, where you really did start to see research that was indicating that there was a pretty, um, well-defined link between hearing loss and a lot of cognitive, um, dysfunction, you know, and it makes so much sense as you, as time goes on and I've learned more about it, of course, like as your brain, you know, it's, it's a muscle, like it will occur atrophy and it's going to, if it's not stimulated and it's not engaged, uh, of course, there's going to be some bad things that that leads to. And so, I think that just from a common sense standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, but now we see it in the data. Well, flash forward to today, and you have companies that have come out that are now actually trying to implement cognitive screeners within uh, the audiology clinic. And again, it's like one of these things that makes so much sense because you think about, well, who's typically the patient demographic? It's older adults that are the most predispositioned to have these cognitive effects. And so you look at everything that's taking place. And again, that's just one small example, but the glass has empty approach is to think, well, you know, crap, the current business model is kind of under siege. Um, it's going to be harder and harder to, from, from a bottom line standpoint, generate the kind of revenue and profit that you had been traditionally through strictly device sales. However, on the flip side, the glass half full view of this is that it might actually be the best thing for the field of audiology in the sense that it's allowing everybody to kind of come up for air and realize maybe we need to be going and reprioritizing where we fit in to the broader medical equation. So, you know, you've had some shout out to this week in hearing. This is how I really got to know you and uh, doing the that uh, YouTube show together with, um, all the other people that are doing, um, those interviews. And, you know, when you interviewed the folks from Cogniview, um, I think it was the former now, uh, chief medical officer, uh, of, of Cogniview. Um, and this is somebody that, you know, is a, an MD and, and he's, uh, clearly worked in a lot of different settings and for big companies, big medical companies. Um, and he's saying that, audiologists have a real opportunity to be the first line of defense here, um, in terms of, of screening for cognitive impairments. Um, so it's like, what an opportunity that is where I go back to the conversation I had with Jill Davis, uh, where, you know, she implemented Cogniview into her, into her clinic. Um, what was one of the biggest byproducts? Her referrals from physicians are through the roof now so much so that, you know, like that's the bulk of the patients that are coming through her doors are ones that primary care physicians are sending her away because they know that she's well-suited to do a lot of these in-depth cognitive screenings where she's a better person to refer them on to. So, you know, and, and I had Joe Sakamura on last time um, where we're talking about the American Institute of Balance, everything in that regard where, you know, implementing a real comprehensive vestibular offering, um, it, it opens the door to these, uh, you know, becoming a 
part of a more holistic medical approach where you're, you're elevating yourself in the eyes of, of your fellow medical professionals, where they're now perceiving you differently than they had before in such a way where, you know, you kind of follow this out. And, and this is what makes me so excited and bullish about this industry is if it, I think if, if this profession is able to kind of pivot properly, um, I think that they will dramatically elevate themselves from a perception, you know, whether it, it's fair or unfair of more or less hearing aid programmers um, into something that is much more comprehensive, uh, that you have this view, this portal into the brain from the ear. And I think that like that to me is where there's going to be so many new doors that start to get opened where in time, as everything gets sorted out with, just like you said, how do you properly implement this into your practice to where it's, it's not super, super disruptive. You can grow into it, but maybe we'll reach a point where the revenue potential from the services of all of these new things dwarf that of the revenue of dispensing products and devices. So I think there is definitely a glass half full argument that's kind of bubbling up right now as more and more companies, I think, start to cater to this pivot, if you will. Oh, 100%. You know, so the demand, the demand for, for hearing care services is through the roof. I mean, just think about it. There's roughly 40 million Americans with some form of hearing loss that need audiological care in some capacity. There's only 14,000 audiologists, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. So we've got a huge demand. We've got a, a workforce shortage, as you, as you pointed out. And so the issue is not that there's not enough people, okay? So let's, let's get that out of the way. There's going to be some segment of, of these 40 million folks that are going to go down the direct-to-consumer market. There's going to be another segment that are going to go through these retail chains, and there's going to be another segment that are going to come to you. The ones that come to you that are in these premier clinics, the cognitive screening aspect, I think, is, as you pointed out, really, really critical, and so, yeah, we had the, um, the, the, the webcast with uh, Dr. Fred Ma, who is retiring at the end of this month at Cognivu. He's the chief medical officer. And then we also had the head of geriatrics at Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Artashir uh, Hasmi. And these gentlemen got on and basically said the same thing that you just did. We have this Lancet report. Hearing loss is the number one modifiable risk factor that's available on the cognitive side. Um, it's not necessarily that you're fitting these hearing aids, but it's the fact that you're able to uh, test the individual and communicate with them what's the best avenue for them to reduce these social isolations and get the medical help that they need. What's interesting about cognitive screenings, and, and regardless of the, of the instrument that you use, the brain is the one place that as your body starts to change, there are changes in that area. So to give you an example, if you have diabetes, diabetes is not only affecting your body, it's also affecting your brain. And you can see those things. Thyroid disease, not only is it affecting your body, it's also affecting your brain. Hearing loss, not only is it affecting your body through social isolation and depression and these things, it's also affecting your brain. 
And so I'm not saying that the cognitive screen is going to be able to temp is, is going to be able to uh, differentially diagnose that this is the area in which this is happening, but it's telling you that something's going on. As the audiologist, these physicians are have an open invitation to us as a profession to say, you're seeing these older people and you're seeing them earlier than we're getting them. And because we're getting them when they're in late stage dementia or severe dementia, we can't do anything other than make them comfortable through pharmaceuticals. When you see them and you have these cognitive screening results, you can now not only take that individual and help us co-manage them through these other family physicians and through endocrinologists and uh, other physicians, you can co-manage them by putting hearing aids on them that allow them now to communicate with these individuals. And so this holistic uh, integrated care of an individual is where the audiologist's future, I think, lies. And again, you're going to have to think about reshaping your clinic to include some of these things. They are, um, you know, there's no reimbursement code for them at this point, but you're able to charge for your services. And then that allows for you now to create a physician network. And that physician network is going to bring in that flow of patients that I would think overwhelmingly need some sort of audiological intervention, whatever it might be. And that's where the audiologist is going to be successful as we move into this new frontier of private practice. Yeah, because I think, again, it goes to that, like you segmented it beautifully there. You're like, look, there's going to be people that undoubtedly go the self-fit route. Those people probably don't need a provider of any type to begin with. And so I think that if we're looking at this realistically, we can say that those people are just new people entering into the funnel. There probably will be some cannibalization of, you know, people that maybe we're going to go and see a provider, um, but those are going to probably be the people that were on the fence to begin with. So I think that in one regard, you have a lot of these people that historically have never been part of the market um, because they're entering in earlier. They're the ones that are the you know, seven to 10 year candidates that we're going to just be on the sideline. They've kind of identified it. It's gradual, whatever. I'll take care of it next year. It never happens. Seven years later, this is a problem. I need to come and see somebody. So I think that's, you know, that's a, that's a portion of people in the market. Um, some clinicians out there might say, I really want to go after those people. Uh, great. Like come up with a strategy. And again, which you differentiate yourself in some way or another that people actively want to come to you rather than do this on their own. Then you have this next bucket. That's going to be people that are probably more along the lines of, uh, I'm, co I'm cost conscious. I know I need to go and see this. Um, you know, these are people that you're probably going to see go into either one of the manufacturer owned retail outlets, a brick and mortar, you know, something like a Costco um, or any of the other brick and mortar chains that will eventually uh, adopt something like a hearing center in them. I think Best Buy is a, probably a very likely candidate to have something similar to what Costco has now. Um, a retailer that doesn't sell any of its own products per se, they're going to look for probably service-based revenue themselves. So it then leaves you with this medical portion. And I think that that's where things get really, really interesting is this, you know, uh, be becoming more medicalized. Um, and, and I think 
it goes back to what I said earlier with, um, you know, this whole idea of the golden circle and understanding your why. And that was such a revelation when I talked to Jill, uh, this is going to be like that, that particular episode is like my most referenced episode now, uh, but it's so good. And I think there's so much that you can take away from it. Um, because you know, the revelation I had was the sense of like, she is really uncovering the root of what's going on. It could be that part of the issue is the medication that they're on, right? Or it could be any of the comorbidities associated with this person. Um, and so I think that the more comprehensive, and I think a lot of this stuff with all these new tests that are being issued around, you know, Cedra, but like everything else that's ancillary to that, where these questionnaires and really gathering as much of a, of, of a total picture as possible with this patient, that solves the why you're trying to really understand why are you coming to see me today? It's not because you have a preconceived notion in your head that like, I need to walk out of here with hearing aids. They're coming to see you because you're the expert and you're the one that can really help them to get to the bottom of this, to understand what's really going on with me. Oh, 100%, 100%. So, so, so lots of things. And I'm, I'm not sure what order I'm going to, I'm going to state these in, but lots of things. So number one, this is the first time in our history that we're seeing multi-generations. You know, you've got the Gen X's, you've got the Gen Y's, you've got the millennials, you know, the younger people, because they've got things in their ears all the time. You've got the, the, the silent generation or, and then you've got the baby boomers, which is huge. Each of those you have to understand a little bit, right? But that being said, and as you pointed out, you're going to have to market to these different groups in a little bit of a different way. We can talk about that in just a sec. But the demand is there across these different generations. The other piece of this is if you think about the people that do come into your clinic, and I'll, and I'll share an experience with me. There was a time when I would spend hours and hours and hours trying to appease somebody who got hearing aids. And it wasn't the fact that they had purchased the hearing aids and the hearing aids weren't working. It was the fact that they were on a medication and the medication was interacting with their ability to hear. Okay. Now, if you think about this from a medical standpoint, now that we're going to co-manage this because we have that opportunity. And as the, the, the uh, Dr. Hashmi from the Cleveland clinic said, these pharmaceuticals are not the best way to treat an individual. The best way to treat the individual is to treat their symptoms before we get to the pharmaceuticals. And so if we know that this person is on this in this drug and we can get them the help that they need, or maybe they don't need a hearing aid because the pharmaceuticals are so involved that the hearing aid is not going to do anything, you're not taking up your chair space. And now the right kinds of help are being done for this individual to get them where they may where they need to be. And it may not be that you're selling them a device, but maybe a pocket talker so that they can have the conversation that they need because they have the hearing loss. So to your point, we're going to have to change how we think about these things. And you're absolutely right in the sense that, um, you know, there's a huge opportunity here. We just can't be afraid of thinking and investing in ourselves. So if you don't have balance, uh, uh, balance training, for example, or it's kind of rusty because you've been out of it for a while, go get it. If that's what that's what's in your market, if you don't know how to do cognition, find out what tests are available, how to employ them, how to deploy them, and then how to utilize them in your clinic so that you can have something like a Jill Davis. But it's all about you having the self-discipline 
to re-engage in the learning process to figure out what you need and then move forward. And I think that's the message that we're trying to get across here. And I would also add, you know, look at your look at look at the comparable health professions that are around. Look at the dentistry model. The dentistry model is about service provision. And the way that they've set it up is they see a large number of individuals and the the dentist only gets involved when it's complicated. Um, and the hygienist is doing all the work in the beginning. So it's it, in that model seems to work. And that's kind of, I think, where we're going to have to go. You might also look at the optometry model, right? Where you've got a set of optometrists that are, are doing the testing. And then you've got these other individuals that are helping with the sale of these devices, the opticians and what have you. So there's different models and you've got to figure out the one that works best for you. But at the end of the day, both my dentist and my optometrist also communicate with my physician. And so it's, again, about having that whole body-centered care approach. And by these individuals talking to one another, they're referring to one another, they're referring out. And, you know, these people didn't just walk in and have these skills. They had to learn them, not only the business side, but also the treatment side and also the interventions, the uh, the diagnostic side. Uh, my dentist, who we've known for a number of years, wasn't doing certain procedures. And she says, you know what, in order to survive, I'm going to have to add these pieces to it. And I, if I re- and I remember that she, you know, she closed her shop down for a couple of months and I know not everybody can do that. So uh, for a couple of weeks, went and took this training and then little by little advanced her, her um, offerings. And now she's got this waiting period because she's one of the few people that's doing these different implants and things that other providers aren't doing now. And so it's, again, about finding that value proposition in your market, servicing those individuals, and then making sure that not only when you service them, but you're keeping in touch with them. Because I get text messages from my physician, from my dentist, you know, you're, you're in six months, your annual checkup is coming up. Hey, you know, you had this implant done, as an example, how are you feeling? And they might send it out a week later, they may send it out a month later, and they may send it out six months later. And it's just those little touch points that make that ultimate difference because it shows that that provider is caring. And that's where we have to move this profession. And you're right, the opportunities are massive as long as you meet the expectations of the demand. So changing gears a little bit, one other topic that I really want to hone in on with you, um, because you have done a lot of research uh, around the labor, um, the labor pool of this industry, uh, I think is going to present some problems. Um, And problem might not be the best word for it. Maybe it's just that we're going to have to be pretty creative with how we solve these challenges. But, um, you know, you look at a shrinking pool of audiologists. Um, and I think you couple that with a uh, labor shortage in general right now that we're experiencing as a country. Um, and I think it presents a bit of a, a challenge in that a lot of what we're referring to today are, you know, ways in which you can redesign the audiology clinic to look more like the dental clinic. And I've actually used that analogy before too. I think it's really apt that you go into the dentist's office, you spend 95% of the time with the hygienist, and then 5% of it more times than not is the dentist coming in, reviewing your x-rays, maybe taking a quick peek at your teeth, saying hello, and then they move on to the next patient, assuming that everything was kind of, you know, run of the mill with you. And it's so it's like, well, what does that look like in in our industry? And, And so I kind of see 
two potential paths. And I want to get your thoughts on this. So one is um, that you grow the labor pool and you have, uh, you, you, I guess, further enable either you make it so that the AUD is easier to come by. So like going all the way back to academia. And I know you've spent a lot of time in academia. So I'm curious to get your thoughts there Um, or adding in ancillary uh, labor. So you have audiology assistants or technicians, uh, hearing aid dispensers, um, or you have front office staff. And then the other would be maximizing the time of the current labor pool by using things like telehealth, um, you know, and tapping into ways in which you can engage your patients remotely uh, so that you're able to actually maximize the time in your day because you don't have all these dead periods. Uh, You kind of do away with a lot of the formalities of, you know, the in-person visit. Uh, It just kind of screams efficiency to me. So maybe it's a combination of both, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because it does kind of also seem like one of these looming issues that we're going to have to reconcile with over the course of the, the coming years, which is, do we have enough professionals in this field to service what I believe is going to be a booming market here as you look at a lot of, again, those macro trends in aging population, uh, a lot of disposable income in those hiring uh, aging brackets, uh, a medical system, a healthcare system that is becoming a lot more patient-centered care, a lot more preventative as opposed to reactionary. Um, so I think that all of these things kind of coincide, I think, where you will have, I think, an increase in demand coupled with potentially a shortage in supply. And so how do you kind of reconcile with that in your opinion? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Victor Bray on a workforce analysis over the last three, maybe four years now. And there are about four or five different databases, but we'll use the the government's database, which is the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. So in 1999 was the first year that they separated audiology from speech-language pathology. And we'll use our our peers in speech-language pathology kind of as as a proxy here as we have this discussion. So at that time, there were roughly 12,500 audiologists in 1999. In 2019, which is the last year in which we did the analysis, there were only 13,600 or 700 audiologists. Okay, We should have had, if, 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 if we would have grown at 3%, which is what all the other uh, comparable health professions grew at. So this is dentistry and physical therapy and occupational health and I mean, occupational therapy, speech pathology and so forth and so on, we should have had another 7,000 individuals in the marketplace. So the question is, is one, why didn't we grow enough? Okay, I'm gonna stop there for a sec. Speech pathology at that time had X number and they grew by 80% over that same period. We only grew by 5%, okay? So the question becomes, what's happening? It's one of the things that we haven't quite figured out yet. One, we've had some retirements. Two, we've had some um, older audiologists uh, leave the 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 market uh, the, uh, the the service industry, uh, either through some sort of attrition, whether it's health or through death. And then the issue that we're facing is is that we have a huge abandonment of um, practitioners leaving the industry at an early age. Uh, If you look at the Ian Windmill and Barry Freeman paper that came out in 2013, if memory serves me right, there's somewhere between 25 and 40% attrition. When uh, Victor and I calculated this, we were somewhere at around 25% attrition. Uh, 
So one in every four students that's graduating is leaving the field for a number of reasons, either it's dissatisfaction, high student loan rates, or whatever the case may be. So to your point, we have all of these AUD programs, and we're not graduating the number of students that's needed in order to take care of the demand within the marketplace. Now, there are several issues with this, um, and we probably don't have time to get into all of these, but some of these issues have to relate with the training that they get. Most institutions are in a are not in a medical setting. So when they when the students are graduating, only thing that they know how to do is, is sell retail devices. And when it comes time for them to get jobs and move into these more medical entities, they can't they, they don't have the skill set in order to manage the patient flow that's coming in. So that's one of the issues. The other issue that we face is we've got some regulatory pieces that uh, either from an academic standpoint or from a uh, licensing standpoint, prevent us from having these uh, underlings that could potentially help us you know, with the assistance and what have you. So for example, there's no undergraduate AUD program. You have to get your undergraduate in speech language pathology and then basically your first year of your AUD is what you would have had as a senior, as an undergrad. And, and we've got to change that. And I know there was some discussion when I was a graduate student back in the early 90s about having this uh, uh, pre-AUD uh, uh, segment before you went into the AUD. And I think we really need to rethink of that as a, as a profession so that we can take those individuals that may not be qualified to go into the AUD programs that could then potentially come in and work as assistants in, a, you know, in, in that realm. And then from a regulatory standpoint, you know, there's really not a scope of, of practice for assistance. Some states allow it and some states don't. Some states have these restrictions, some states have those restrictions. And so that then precludes the ability for some practices to have that type of assistant help. And then your front office staff is limited in what they can do. So we have to overcome these issues in order for these things to happen. And I think, and to your point, we have that opportunity through these technologies of telehealth. So you can now remote program devices, you can troubleshoot these devices, you can do testing online to a certain capacity. And we need to be able to embrace these technologies, one, for the consumers that potentially can't get to us, right? And then number two, uh, just to preserve time. So if I'm doing, for example, three hours of telehealth, I might be able to see eight patients as opposed to have eight patients sitting in my waiting room. And these are the kinds of, of decisions and strategies that each practice needs to look at to maximize their opportunities, not only to see patients, but also to increase their revenue stream, because those are the patients that you can charge for services. And those are the patients that eventually will come back to you to purchase a new set of devices or upgrade the devices that they already have. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you're right. There's so much to unpack there that we could have a full discussion about, uh, you know, everything as it relates to how, how do you kind of solve the labor pool conundrum. But I agree with you that I think that the, the telehealth side of things, um, I think it's inevitable for a number of reasons. One, I just kind of see it as sort of like Zoom in the sense that, you know, the pandemic accelerated the adoption of video conferencing. And so now what we'll probably see is it's just that it's not as if Zoom and, and all of these other 
Google Meet and Microsoft Teams, they weren't ever going to probably proliferate. It's just that we've accelerated the timeline. And so what we're now going to see are a lot, there's going to be a lot of innovation on the actual video conferencing itself. I think Microsoft's a really, really interesting company in that regard because they've bought, uh, they've had a number of acquisitions in the healthcare space. For example, Nuance, uh, which is, you know, this huge voice AI company um, where I think that there will be a future iteration of Microsoft Teams that will be HIPAA compliant and it will be a telehealth platform more or less. Um, you kind of see this with what Teladoc's doing as well. And so my point is, is it's like, we're at the very early innings of telehealth in general, but the Calvary's here because of the fact that there's now so much uh, adoption of these and, and you've got, it's normalized it. Like, like the average Joe now has a familiarity with these types of, of um, tools. And so you're going to just see there be more incentive to build on top of that. And so I think that the end result is going to be that what we see today is like, there might be some inherent limitations with it. I think those will just, uh, you know, incrementally get eroded over time as more money gets poured into this largely by these major tech companies that, that will, will kind of be the foundation for which these platforms live on um, are just going to get that much more sophisticated. So I think like, I think there's already a lot of really interesting things that can be done from a telehealth standpoint within this, this field. And I think that's only going to get more pronounced as time goes on as the sort of the tool sets themselves uh, maturate and, and just get more sophisticated as time goes on. 100% agree. You know, the manufacturers at this point, you know, the ones that were the the early to market uh, folks, you know, they're retooling their with what's available to them as, as, as these software platforms are maturing. Uh, you've also got independent platforms like Tune that's come out, you know, that allow you they, that have a built in uh, virtual clinic that's built in and allows you to practice within a certain scope, whether it's uh, you know, the direct-to-consumer products or whether you're helping some individual with counseling or whether you're helping some individual with some sort of a programming uh, uh, opportunity. And I think all of these things together are really going to increase in proliferation. And that's going to be the future of how we see some patients. You're going to have some that want to come in and still see you. There are going to be others where most of this, most of your engagement is going to be platform-based. And I think that's particularly going to be true with these younger generations. And so the brick and mortar, as we know it today, I think will dissipate over time and things will become more virtual over time. But we're not quite there yet. And you have to start thinking about those kinds of uh, transformations as you're developing for the future. And I want to just say something there, too, because I think a lot of people assume that when people say these younger generations, there's an implication that that's the actual end user. And, and oftentimes it's actually not. It's that they're the loved ones that's having, helping to sort of facilitate the whole thing. They're kind of the broker. And so as, you know, I'm a millennial. So as my parents age, you know, they're both baby boomers. They, you know, I, I just kind of envision these scenarios where, you know, I'm helping them to get set up so that they can have these online con consultations with all their medical providers. You know, it's not going to just be audiology, like it's going to be this 
and it, it, and it's not to say that like brick and mortar goes away or anything like that. I think it's optionality is really what we're talking about. It's the ability to, to have the option. And I think that, again, that's part of the really exciting aspect of this is how much of your time is sort of wasted um, on what could be more efficiently done online, you know, where it's just like, look at the end results, the same, you get a happy customer, a happy patient, you troubleshooted the thing for them, but they didn't have to come into your office, sign in and kind of bog down some of maybe the processes in your time. It's just something that could be done rather quickly like that. Um, So I just think that, again, it just kind of continues to reinforce this idea that there's a lot of really positive uh, macro things happening right now for the field of this, of, of audiology and, and for hearing professionals writ large. But I do think that it's like this really defining moment where, um, each individual provider and then the industry as a whole is going to have to sort of decide where do they want to focus their, uh, their time in order to prepare for, um, a, a turbulent time, a time when, you know, there, there is going to be a lot of conversation around, um, you know, in the public, I think of like, do you need to go and see a provider or can you just do this all on your own? And I think that, um, time will be the prevailing, you know, determinant of that. I think that over time people will realize that there's a ton of value that a professional can offer, but that, that value has to be, identified. And then it has to be, you know, facilitated every patient interaction. Um, and, and I think that along with that is going to have to be the transformation of the service delivery models, whether it be, you got to start looking real closely at like, do you bring on rather than hire another audiologist? Does it make more sense to bring on three technicians that you, you sort of train to do a lot of the administrative or, uh, you know, the, the non-premium stuff kind of a la like the dentistry model that you outlined, or do you go and you pivot more toward having a real defined telehealth offering and start to triage in in a way where somebody calls in and historically you would say, come on in and we'll get that fixed for you. You start to come up with process processes and procedures in which a lot of that started to be now triaged in a way where we're actually going to do this online for you. And you're not even going to necessarily have to see the audiologist. You're going to see me, the front office staff, or one of our technicians that's been trained to handle these kinds of things. So it's just, uh, things are in flux right now, but I think ultimately it can be a really exciting, uh, future that we're kind of moving toward. 100% 100% agree. You know, and, and, and audiologists have been territorial for a long time with the audiometer in their space. And, you know, I think it's maybe time to to let go of that a little bit um, uh, and, and just realize that you're still a valued component of the healthcare system. And you're just going to have to shift your priorities. It's not that you're, we're getting rid of you. It's just a shift in priorities. And you're absolutely right. You know, there's more and more demand. Meet the consumer where they're at. They're going to come at you from different angles. And you have to be flexible in how that happens. And I'll just share one more thing as you were talking about this this telehealth piece. You know, there's a public health paper that came out in 2017 by a lady, a Dr. Ariana Plani, Plani. And what she found was is that most audiologists were living in metropolitan areas, but the number of individuals who needed healthcare, hearing healthcare, were actually in rural areas. 
And so again, that whole travel time thing is you meet your consumer where they are. And there's a huge opportunity for people that are distant from you. So, you know, I'm in the Dallas area, you go out 100, 150 miles and there's nothing out there. It's East Texas or West Texas. You know, if I was in private practice today, those are the kinds of people that I would try to be servicing in some capacity. And it may be that they got to come in once, but after that, I'm doing everything off of the telehealth. So again, it's about meeting these people where they are. There are huge opportunities. Your revenue streams will have, you know, your your revenue streams will still be there. It's just, you're going to have to pivot on how those monies are coming in. But the opportunities are huge, huge in this particular time. And, you know, the evolution of where we're going is going to be really, really critical. And I, I see audiology being on the better side of where we were five, 10 years from now. And so I'm excited about all those things. Love it. Perfect way to conclude this conversation. That's a, it's a really well uh, way to say that. So I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.